0: If you have a Bibles, uh, take them and turn uh, to 2 Thessalonians. We'll spend a little bit of time there this morning as we've started a short series in that book. As you're turning there, uh, a reminder to us that something that we haven't done for three years, we get to do again. And that is our church picnic. And so the church picnic is scheduled for Rath Trevor uh, Beach Park, the campground we reserve, the group campsite there. And it's uh, 1 o'clock on August the 7th. Uh, We do need help in any number of ways, uh, setting up, taking down, uh, cooking, um, providing salads, um, uh, games, uh, all those sorts of things. There's ways that you can find out what to do. There's a bulletin board at the back that has some of the information. Uh, You can call the church office and talk to Adrian, and Adrian's looking after a lot of the picnic with uh, Gina Gertzen. And uh, it really would help if you would sign up uh, at some point, just go online and sign up. And that way we get to know uh, who's coming and how much... um, prime rib steak to buy. <laughs> all right, how much hamburgers and hot dogs? <laughs> but uh, if you would sign up, that would certainly help us and uh, we'll have all that food ready to go. April, or no, August the 7th. Remember it. Uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to read verse 5 to the end of the chapter and then we'll come back and just settle our thoughts around a, a few verses there. "'Away from the presence of the Lord "'and from the glory of his might, "'when he comes on that day "'to be glorified in his saints "'and to be marveled at among all who have believed, "'because our testimony to you was believed. "'To this end, we also pray for you "'that our God may make you worthy of his calling "'and may fulfill every resolve for good "'and every work of faith by his power "'so that the name of our Lord Jesus "'may be glorified in you "'and you in him "'according to the grace of our God.' and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May God help us as we dive into his word. We're in the book of 2 Thessalonians, and it is a book that is a pastoral letter, largely written by uh, Paul, who was the father of this church, the spiritual father of the church. Um, you can read about how the church started in Acts chapter 17. And it's a real pastoral heart that is uh, behind this letter, Uh, Paul is not indifferent to the sufferings of those who are among his uh, congregations. Uh, He is not unaware of what they're going through. And so from time to time, he addresses them in epistles. And this is certainly one letter that Paul sent to a local congregation who, in this particular case, was suffering. They were suffering um, for their conviction and their confidence in Jesus Christ. They were suffering because they had given up one way of life and embraced another way of life. They are being persecuted. And so how do you persecute people like, or how do you persecute? How do you encourage people in those kinds of situations? If you were to go to uh, Iran and talk to the Christians that are suffering horribly there because they have embraced Christ, what would you say to encourage them? You can read the voice of martyrs that comes out on a fairly regular basis and you can get a, a subscription to its email updates and you read about how the people of God are suffering horribly, in the world in which we live for their faith? How do you encourage them? What would you say to them? What would, you, uh, what would you present to them that might help them endure and hang in there and stand through? This is what Paul is doing. He's trying to help them make sense. He's trying to give them hope of the injustice that they are facing, of the persecution that they're suffering. And the way that he does is he fixes their attention. He reminds them on a particular day. It's amazing to me that when you sum it all up, that's what Paul does. He directs their attention to a certain day that is coming in history. It's a day that many of us heard about. It's a day that all of us are supposed to watch for and wait for, but it's a day that so easily gets pushed to the side, so easily gets smothered by the cares of this world that we forget it or we don't look to it any longer. Nonetheless, this is how Paul encourages this congregation. He says, hang in there because God has fixed a day There is a sure and certain day in which his son will return and judge the earth in righteousness. It's a day that we know is coming. It's a day that God speaks of again and again and again in his scripture and reminds us and promises us that it is coming. It is a day of judgment through Jesus Christ. I read that Psalm uh, 98 where there the psalmist says, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and peoples with equity. Is that something to be joyful about? Is that something to be happy about? Is that something to look forward to? Is there relief in that day? Well, yes, says Paul. There is great encouragement and comfort in that coming day. Fix your eyes upon it. One of the things he wants to do as he does this is remind the people that God is just. I think to a congregation of people that are suffering, that are feeling the, the pain of following Christ or losing their homes or, or suffering physically or losing their jobs, maybe some are being um, uh, thrown in, in prison, does it help them to think about a just God? I think it does. They, they need to have their sights set on, okay, there will be justice one day. There will be judgment one day. And that's what Paul reminds them of as they think about history. You and I know that history is complex, isn't it? You, you, you hear what's going on in the world in which we live. If you're a student of history at all, you know about the world in its past for the last thousands of years as it's been going. It's complex, but it is headed in a direction. Yes, some things repeat themselves, but the direction of history is towards an end. It had a start, it had a beginning, and it will have a conclusion, It is a conclusion that will come at the end of this age, the end of these days in which we live. And Paul says, and the Bible tells us again and again, fix your eyes on this day. Watch for it, wait for it, be ready for it, look for it, plan for it, be prepared for it. On that day when Christ returns, Paul reminds this congregation that God will exercise his justice, that God is just and therefore when that day's judgment will be meted out or will be made to all the earth. Rights will be, or wrongs will be righted, injustices will be judged. Those who have afflicted will be repaid. Those who have been afflicted will be rewarded. There's a considerable turning of the tables, so to speak, on that day. It's a reminder that there is an age to come, that this world is not all there is. Sometimes we watch people and we even listen to conversations and sometimes we can get caught up in thinking this world is all there is. Well, if that is really true, then there is no justice. When will justice come? When will righteousness be, um, be, be, be seen? When will uh, hurts be, be right, made right? When will evil be, uh, be dealt with? If this world is all there is, then what is the hope of that ever happening? But Paul here reminds this congregation that there is a life to come, that there is an eternity that God has planned. And some will spend that eternity, though, separated from God forever, away from his presence, And others will be ushered into his kingdom. And this will all happen at the revelation of Christ. The blessed hope of the church, the coming of Jesus Christ back to this world. And so Paul says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. This is evidence that God is just, that he will mete out righteousness, that righteousness will judge the world and all that has taken place. So again, these are pastoral words that Paul speaks and he anticipates questions as he talks about God being just and he talks about uh, th- this coming day. Well, when will that happen? And we'll see what he says about that in a couple of moments. And he says, well, who will be punished and who will be rewarded? Well, he talks about that as well in this particular text. And he says, well, what will punishment look like and what will... What will um, a justice look like, or reward look like for those who have trusted God? Well, he describes and he answers those questions as he goes through this text, and I just want to open a few of them. But at the heart of what Paul is talking with is he's saying, I want you to fix your eyes on a particular day. And it's in verse seven. If you have your Bibles open there, you might even want to underline this because it's, an, it's a critical day. He says that this day will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That is a coming day when Jesus is revealed from heaven. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 describes that day uh, as uh, through the sheep and the goat judgment. Some of you may be aware of it, but it's a day of judgment when Christ comes back. And so in Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 31, we have the introduction to that judgment. We won't read the whole passage, but just to see how, how Jesus sets up what will take place when Jesus Christ is revealed. In verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory. It's not if the Son of Man, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Jesus is telling them, I'm coming back. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He's not coming by Himself. He's coming with all the holy angels. And in another place in Thessalonians, he says, and he's coming back with all the saints, those who have preceded uh, his return in death. He is coming in all his glory. And then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats he will place on his left. It's a reminder that at the end of this age, Christ is coming back in all his glory to judge the nations. And then in Revelation chapter 30, and there's so many passages that we could turn to, but Revelation chapter 30 is probably a, a judgment that if you've, ever, if you've been in the church for any period of time, you know about and you've heard about. It's the great white throne judgment. And there, John says, then I saw in heaven, in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Again, this is a judgment that will happen at the end of this age when Christ comes back. This is spoken of in so many different ways throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, there's three particular words that you can look out for. I've underlined many of them. I'm, I keep working them through in my head, but each of these words is used to describe a different aspect of the return of Christ this day that Paul is fixing the eyes of these Christians on. He's saying, listen, I know you're in tough, but hang in there because there's coming a day, the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. The Bible in some places talks about it as the coming of the Lord. Uh, revelation speaks about this very clearly. It's a word that's used or Thessalonians in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord. That's referring to the exact same day as concerning the revelation of Christ from heaven. And it's the exact same word or reference that's used in verse 8 of chapter 7 or chapter 2 where he says, Jesus will come and kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There's two more words, or, or another word, the appearance of his coming. The first word again, then, is coming, the coming of the Lord. It is a word that is used to describe the, the coming of, a, of officials or, ent, or, or kings into a city. And as they made their approach, people in the city would go out to meet them and then they would be escorted back into the city. It's what we do with politicians today. Often when they come into a particular town, they might come to an airport and there's a small delegation that goes out to meet them. They don't jump on the plane and take off again. No, they hop in their limousines and they come to the place where all the people are gathered to meet them. And so this coming of the Lord is described in again and again in, in Scripture of Jesus coming back from heaven, back to earth in an official visit. Another word that's used to describe the coming of the Lord is the appearing of the Lord. I read that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. The appearing of the Lord, it's the word from which we get epiphany from. I had an epiphany. Something came to my mind. I I, I, I saw something, or people see an epiphany. It's an appearance. And so one day, Jesus Christ is going to appear. We are going to see him. He's gonna be manifested to us. And so the Bible speaks about on that day, the revelation of Christ, when Christ comes back, he will appear. We will see him. Every eye will see him. And then there is a third word. I've already mentioned, it's the revelation of Christ. This is the apocalypse of Christ. It means to reveal. That's what the word means. It means to uncover. It means to pull back the curtain from. It means to lift off of. And so when Jesus Christ returns, there will be a revealing of what is hidden. There will be an uncovering of what we haven't been able to see with our physical eyes. This will be an incredible revelation, an incredible appearing, an incredible uncovering of the Lord. And it's this day which looms over the history of this world. I don't know if we think about that. This is the next most critical day in this entire history of all humankind. It is the day when Jesus Christ comes back again. It's not the next election. It's not when the war in Ukraine, it's over. It's not when, 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 when some new political decision is made or some new economic decision is made that will impact the whole world. No, the next critical day in the history of this world is when Jesus Christ comes again. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the day that, that is a, a, a monumental day in the history of this world. It is a day which ends this age and ushers us in to the age to come. And so it says that Jesus Christ, and Paul reminds him, he says, and this Jesus Christ, this this justice of God will see, will be seen at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes from heaven. And you say, well, why heaven? Well, that's where Jesus is. That's where he is right now. And in Acts chapter one, verse 11, as, as, as his time on earth after he had been raised from the dead is over. It's, 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 the disciples are brought out to a, a place and there's angels there and Jesus Christ is, is before their eyes taken up into heaven in a physical form, up into the clouds. And the angels say to him, in the same way that you have seen him go up into heaven, you are going to see him come back. So this is a reminder that Jesus is there. And that Jesus is coming back from there to earth. So that is why he would say, why heaven? But heaven is a, is a real place. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not something that Christians have just made up. Heaven is, is it's all around us, so to speak. It's where God dwells. It's the habitation of God, as Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. It's a place where God rules this earth from. There is a throne in heaven. As John says in Revelation chapter 4, 1, I saw into heaven and there was a throne and one was sitting on the throne. Right now, there is a real place called heaven in which God dwells and where Christ is reigning. And so when Christ comes from heaven, he will come with the power and authority of heaven. He will come back in a way that he went in, in a way that we will see him physically. It's a place from which God rules. It's a place from which God speaks. It's a place from which God directs the affairs of this world. It's a place from which his angels are sent out as ministering spirits to accomplish his work in this physical world in which we live. And so as people of God, do we not love Christ? And if we love Christ, where do we want him to come back from? See, the Thessalonian Christian, it, it describes him as having turned from idols to serve the living God. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, and to wait for his son from heaven. Do we think about that as we go through our days? do as as we're facing the stuff of life as we're in tough as as all the issues are around us do we say no no but i know that jesus is coming back i know that there's a day when he's coming back from heaven and everything is going to be set right and eternity is going to bend. i can't wait for the day he's coming back from heaven whereas they paul wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 for the lord himself will descend from heaven. He's not asleep. You know that, right? He's not hiding in some far distant corner of the world, kind of getting things together. No, he is in heaven right now, reigning in heaven, as we talked about around Christmas time. He is on the throne reigning. And one day, he will be revealed to us. So this is, this is so much a part of what Paul is saying that he says it again and again to them. He says that he's gonna be revealed from heaven. And then in verse 10, he says, and when he comes on that day, there's another reminder that on that day, he's coming back. And then in verse 11, he says, to this end. To what end? To the, to the end that Jesus Christ is coming back. We pray that you will be steadfast and movable as you suffer that when that day comes, you will be ready for it. You will be looking looking for it when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. There's nothing we have to compare this to, loved ones. Nothing. There's nothing as as massive as this. There's nothing as grand as this. There's nothing as great as this, as glorious as this. We, We have the first coming of Christ, but it's the exact opposite of the second coming of Christ. At the first coming of Christ, nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew where he was. He was born to a, a, a he was he was conceived when his parents weren't even married in shame. He was born into poverty. He was brought into this world almost incognito, so to speak. Nobody knew where he was. He was born a human With all the frailties that you and I experience, all the weaknesses of our flesh, all the limitations that you and I have as human beings, and we have lots of limitations. God, it says, knows that we are but dust. So, His first coming of Christ, it just, nobody knew about it. But His second coming, loved ones, His second coming is described as a glorious, Powerful, magnificent. Every eye will see him when he comes back. This is the unveiling. When Christ came the first time, who is this guy? It's just a little baby. When Christ comes back, there will be no doubting that this is God. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. As he comes in all his glory, all his might, all his power, that will be unveiled. The curtain will be pulled back. We will see Jesus as he really is. Can you imagine that day? Can you picture what it will be like To see the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who rules the heavens and the earth, the one who is perfect in righteousness, the one who is perfectly just, the one who is mighty beyond all might, the one who is glorious beyond all glory. We will see him. And it will be him, not his representative. not not an angel, it will be a personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ, a physical, personal return of Jesus Christ from heaven. And I said, it will be visible. There will be no mistaking. There will be no, hmm, I wonder if that's him over there. No, it will be a, a visible manifestation, unveiling of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it will be glorious. It says, with all his glory, with all the glory of his angels, it's described as something that will be a, 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 the voice of mighty angels. It's described as being accompanied by the trumpet of God. Does, does that not thrill you? Do you think about that? When was the last time you thought about that? When was the last time that the revelation of Christ sent shivers up and down your spine? When was it that that bolstered your perseverance, when that encouraged your hope, when that maintained your steadfastness, when it said, no, I'm gonna hang in there because my Lord is coming back from heaven? Paul adds his own bit here. He says he's coming back in blazing fire. Blazing fire in some places in the Bible is used to describe a theophany, the presence of God. So when Moses came upon the burning bush, he he, he saw a, a blazing fire, the presence of God there. In other places in the Bible, the blazing fire is used to describe the judgment of God. I don't really want to choose between the two. I think it's left ambiguous enough that we know that when Jesus comes back in blazing fire, it's both. He comes back in the glorious presence of God and he comes back to judge the world in which he has made it. So this is, and then it says he comes back with the angels of his power. Some of your translations might say his mighty angels. I think it's best to understand it with the angels of his power. The angels are the one that fulfill his commands. The angels are the one that take his dictates out across the world. The angels are the ones that receive their power from Christ. This is no little thing, loved ones. This is massive. And this is the picture that Paul paints for these Christians. He says, I know you're in tough. I know you're wondering if if anything is ever going to be brought of this and if good is ever going to, rise to the top, and if justice is ever going to be meted out, yes, it is. There is coming a day, there is a day fixed at the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. And behind that is his confidence in the justice of God. Do you believe in a just God? Amen. Do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? See, we live in a moral universe, loved ones, we do. And final judgment is rooted in that reality. It's rooted in, in what we sense and in what we know it. It's rooted in how we live our days. There's not a single person here, I think at some point in their life, hasn't in some situations said, I wish I could have justice. This isn't fair. They've gotten away with that. They've done something and and they ought to pay for that. We we have this internal, built-in sense of justice and it comes because we are made in the image of God. Marred, yes, but we are made in the image of God and God is perfectly just. God is perfectly righteous. God is the righteous one. And because God is just, we have an expectation of justice. We just don't really like the way sometimes that's meted out, sometimes the way it's described. But we all want it. There's few things in the Bible that are more strongly stated and and revealed throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20, than the judgment of God and the justice of God. It's something that is experienced, it's something that is described. We see it in the New Testament, we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the Law, we see it in the Psalms, we see it in the wisdom literature, we see it in the prophets, we see it in the gospels, we see it in the epistles, we see it in the book of Revelation. In fact, the theme of judgment, far from fading into the background as we get into the New Testament, is actually put in the forefront in the New Testament. In the fixed day. This whole world is moving towards that day in which Christ will finally and fully and completely judge the world. So it's not something that's set aside in the New Testament. It's it's not that we just want a God of love and mercy. No, Christ is, is a judge. He pronounced woes throughout his ministry. And he's coming back as the judge of this earth. The same Jesus who is our savior The same Jesus who is the Savior of the world is also the judge of the world. He has authority to judge. Why does does Christ have authority to judge? Do you think that he was just kind of selected by a group of prime ministers and presidents around the world and say, yeah, we like you, you'll sit. No, he, he has authority to judge because this is his world. He made it. Everything in it, heaven, earth, seas. Everything that flies in it, everything that walks in it, everything that grows in it, you and I, he's made us. We are his. He sets the parameters of how we live. He sets the guidelines through which we live. And he can judge us. Just as if you make something, you can determine what you do with that. You can determine how it's used. You can determine when you're done with it. You can determine what you do do with it because you made it. It's yours. Well, in the same way, Christ has authority to judge us because we are His and this world is His. But He also has the moral authority to judge. He loves righteousness and He hates iniquity. He is righteousness. And so he has the moral authority as the one who has uh, uh, who, who has given us the standards by which reflect his character. He has the wisdom to judge. I said in the first service, I've had conversations over the years with people going to court, and often they would ask, "Would you, would you just pray that the judge will have wisdom? Would you pray that the facts will be evident?" We pray that as both cases are presented that, 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 that she won't be biased to one side or the other. So would you pray for wisdom as my case is heard? Is, is that what we pray for when Christ judges? Oh, I, I hope Christ knows everything. You know, I hope he said sees what they did to me first. Well, we know that, right? Christ is omniscient. Christ is omnipresent. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nowhere that he is not. There is no heart that he doesn't know completely and fully. There is no intent and motive that he doesn't know and hasn't seen. There's no word that we've spoken that he, that he isn't aware of and he doesn't remember. He remembers tones, he remembers all of that. There's no circumstance that he is unaware of that, that would affect the judgment if he, if he was aware of it. He has the wisdom to judge. Is that not the kind of judge that any of us would want to stand before? And he has the power to pronounce and to execute judgment. This is hope. It really is. But it's a reminder, but it's hope. It's hope. Okay, I can hang in there. Okay, I'll follow God. I'll, I'll listen to him. Because I... Believe and I know that as he came the first time, he's coming a second time, and God tells me what he's going to do the second time that he comes to this earth. So, Paul is encouraging them in the light of the revelation of Christ from heaven and the nature of God to hang in there and trust yourself to him. As Abraham said when Jesus was talking to him as he was approaching Sodom, he says, Shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? His assumption was absolutely he will do right because he's just. That is his character. All his ways are just. Just and upright is he. As the, de- the temple was being dedicated, Solomon prayed again and again in two or three different places God, when you hear from heaven, when you see, will you not judge justly? He believed that God was righteous, he believed that God was fair. The Bible speaks of the moral perfection of God again and again and again. The Bible says in one place, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Is that not really what we want? I know that scares us, and maybe that's sometimes where we don't want to think of God as a judge. But I'm glad it is. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's the character of God that we trust in. It's the character of God that guarantees that all things will be righted one day. So what will happen on the day when the Lord is revealed? Well, he tells us in verse six, he says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We have a hard time with those words in any kind of context. To repay means to exact retribution, to pay back. The Bible reminds us again and again that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Sooner or later, each one will receive what we deserve, whether in this life or in the life to come. This is one of the basic facts of life. We know it in our hearts. We feel it. We wrestle with it. There's exact reciprocity. He will repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. This doesn't negate that God is mercy, but we don't don't pit one characteristic of God against another character of God. We don't get to choose which one we like. These are just all different ways which express the fullness of God. He is both merciful and He is both just and He is just. He is both loving and He is both a judge. He says he will pay back. I hope as, we, as you hear that, you, 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 you don't think at all that we have any place in our own hearts for vengeance. We don't. What the Bible tells us to do is endure, persevere, pray, wait. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Why? For yours is the kingdom of heaven. There's coming a day when God will set things right. Wait for it. There's, you might be in tough right now and somebody being brutal towards you, pray for them. You might be thinking, oh, I got to give up. I can't handle this, persevere. But divine vengeance belongs to the Lord. Why not human vengeance? I think we know that, do we not? It's easy to act unjustly, right? It's, it's easy out of our own hurt and pain to overdo it or of our own sense of kindness and fairness to underdo it. So for humans to take the task of vengeance, which is a biblical reality, we don't have the capabilities of doing that. It's easy for us to act out of vindictiveness. I'm going to get you back. You're going to know how much you hurt me. It's easy for us to act out of ignorance. We don't know the whole story. I don't know what motivated somebody to do what they did. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know the circumstances that led them to the conclusion that they came to. But none of those are found in God. God is not vindictive. God does not act out of ignorance. God does not act unjustly. It is his character. God knows his standards, he knows the circumstances, he knows the motives, he knows the full truth. He is just. His vengeance is not retaliation, nor is it an irrational outburst of anger, but is an execution of his just judgment upon humankind. Think this through. Just think it through. Maybe think it through the rest of this afternoon or or this week. But part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment, is it not? We want God to be perfect. He declares himself to be perfect. He is perfect in every way. So would we not expect him also to be perfect in judgment? Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being for us to worship? Why would we ever worship a God who changed his mind all the time about what was right or wrong? Why would you ever worship a God who might be just with some and unjust towards others? No, we worship God because he is just, because he is righteous. And just as he will be to others, he will also be to us. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to the questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. Thank the Lord for that. And this is how Paul was encouraging these young Christians. He's saying, just commit yourself to God. Be thankful that God is just and he will set things right at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for you who have been afflicted and you who are suffering and you have been persecuted, he will give you relief. He will give you rest. The the word that's used to, to... for relief is a word that means to loosen or to slack the tension of. It's used to uh, describe the releasing of a bow string. You know, if you've seen long bows and, and they're strung, there's real tension there. But you can bend the bow down and then unhook the string and you release the tension. That's what is being described here, that God will release the tension from you. Some of you can't wait for that day, can you? God will release the tension justly when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. We need to think this through. There is a side benefit or a secondary benefit, I think. Not I think, I know for some maybe here or some who are listening who to this point have walked away from God, have said, I want nothing to do with God. There's a reminder here that you will have something to do with God. Every single one of us will have something to do with God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How will we stand? Will you stand with your own excuses and your own attempts to justify your actions, or you, will you stand in Christ Jesus? He can be your Savior today and also your judge at the end of this world. Or he can be your judge only at the end of this world. Choose Savior and judge, I implore you. Seek him, he will be found by you. And he will give you justice at the end of this age. Father, thank you for the way that Paul encourages these suffering Christians. I must admit, it's probably not the first thing that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this. But it is the most profound thing in all the world. It gives us hope. It enables us to not take matters into our own hands. It makes us look forward to a day when suffering will end. It will end one day. Father, would you help us to remember that again and again and again, that this world is coming to an end. There is eternity in the age to come. There's a fixed day in which this present age will wrap up. And when our destinies will be determined for the future age. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, Father. Thank you that you have again and again and again and again throughout your word reminded us of the fact that we will stand before you one day. And you've even told us what the basis of our standing will be and what the basis of our judgment will be. There will be no surprises. You've also told us, though, that if we try to stand on our own, we will not stand. But you've provided a Savior, one who stands in for us, one who stands in our place, one who has dealt with all of the things for which I should be judged for. Oh, Father, would you turn all of our eyes towards heaven this week to wait for your Son to come? And would you turn some hearts away from running to seeking, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.